Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Uh, the uh, Torah reading for this morning is uh, uh, traditionally uh, the story of the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, uh, and it begins uh, in chapter 13 of Exodus, but, um, but we'll, uh, just to get our bearings with the story uh, before uh, we bring in our special guests for conversation, um, I'll just read a little bit from chapter 14 of Exodus, starting uh, with, the, with verse 8. So chapter 14, verse 8 in, in the Eitz Chaim Pumash, it's page 402. <clears throat> the Lord stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites, as the Israelites were departing defiantly. The Egyptians gave chase to them, and all the chariot horses of Pharaoh, the horse, his horsemen, and his warriors overtook them and encamped by the sea, Ni Pihachiroth, before Baal-Tzaphon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians, for it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? But Moses said to the people, Have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance which the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will battle for you. You hold your peace. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it, so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots and his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who had been going ahead of the Israelite army now moved and followed behind them. And the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took up a place behind them. And it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus there was the cloud with the darkness, and it cast a spell upon the night, so that the one could not come near the other all through the night. Then Moses held out his arm over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night, and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split, and the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit of them, after them into the sea all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, hold out your arm over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses held out his arm over the sea, and at daybreak the sea turned to its normal state, and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But the Lord hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea 
not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. And when Israel saw the wondrous power which the Lord had wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They had faith in the Lord and God's servant Moses. So that is the powerful and dramatic story of the miracle at the Sea of Reeds, at the Red Sea. Uh, and what is uh, uh, truly um, resonant about that story to me is that, uh, is that feeling of entrapment um, that precedes the miracle that happens at the sea with the children of Israel uh, having the impassable sea of in front of them and, and Pharaoh's threatening and charging army of charioteers behind them. Uh, and they're stuck in place. Uh, that, uh, that, that feels to hit very close to home for me as we are stuck in place, uh, not being uh, able to, uh, to uh, go outside, uh, to back uh, to our normal lives. Uh, many of us uh, in, in fear of what is out there, uh, out in front of us. Uh, what may be surrounding us, um, and uh, um, and yet also uh, um, uh, for many of us uh, having uh, facing difficulty with remaining inside uh, for various reasons. Right? Maybe uh, that means um, a profound loss of income. Uh, maybe that means uh, um, uh, difficulties with, with with balancing work and childcare. Uh, maybe that means isolation and, and loneliness um, that we that we have inside. Um, there's there's uh, any manner of uh, any number of of, uh, of, of reasons uh, why this feels like a moment in which we're we're, we're trapped uh, between the sea and uh, and and the army, uh, so to speak. Um, and so uh, to help us uh, uh, sift through those waters, to help us meet this moment, it is uh, my my honor and my privilege to welcome uh, the Honorable uh, Representative uh, Abigail Spanberger of uh, the Seventh uh, Congressional District. Of Virginia, um, uh, many of our uh, uh, many of our representatives in representative in in uh, in, in Congress, uh, and so uh, Abigail, are you unmuted? I am. Are you unmuted? Sorry. Yes. Great. Okay, so it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us and to uh, navigate this uh, this Red Sea moment that we find ourselves in. Uh, but first, uh, how how are you? How is your family? Uh, we're we're doing fine, you know. Certainly, at this time of crisis for so many in the community, um, you know, I'm 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 grateful for where we are. Um, our our kids are at home, so uh, you you and I have discussed the challenges of attempting to homeschool. Uh, I had great respect for all of our educators before, but now it is just through the roof um, in terms of what they are able to do. Um, with just three children uh, versus an entire classroom. Uh, but, you know, what's been the, the real focus of mine so far is you know, contending with all of the challenges that people across the district are facing. Uh, one of the things that I find most humbling and interesting about my job is the ability to hear other people's stories. And, um, you know, I, I know that's a commonality that we share given your line of work. Um, but in, and you know the stories are always the ups and the downs and the the needs for help and the calls of concern, 
but at this time of crisis, um, it's it's really unlike anything that I've experienced thus far in my in my time in office. Yeah. So you know, I, I want to um, uh, share with people that um, uh, that uh, as uh, the congresswoman and I were, were preparing for the conversation today. Um, uh, I, I raised a suggestion to her that maybe she should give her uh, children CIA training uh, during the course of the, of the crisis. And I think that that, uh, that will really benefit us all. So, uh, so uh, we'll see what the fruits of that labor is. And I, and I think that uh, you're right. I mean, I, I hope the first bill that's introduced when this is all over is uh, the, the bill to uh, pay teachers $1.8 million a year. <laughs> because, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if we could start there um, with, uh, with with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and that and that um, prevalent feeling in the story that that really comes through in in the drama of of, of feeling trapped, of feeling stuck. And I, and I wonder if you could reflect on that for a moment about um, that that feeling of 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 being trapped and being stuck that uh, that I think many of us are dealing with right now. What what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And and how are you thinking about that? So I, I'm thinking about that, and I, I I think it's a it's a it's a good way of framing it. I mean, the as much as you can call something good, but it's a it's a good way of framing it because we are at this time so limited in what we can do and where we can go and how we can interact. And so, you know, what I'm hearing about is the the small business owners, you know, restaurant owners. Uh, people in our community that have worked a very, very long time to fulfill a dream, to create a reality out of something they thought, uh, you know, would, would be their livelihood. And, and they're trapped. They can't open their doors. They can't pay their employees. They can't function. Uh, you know, we've got kids at home from school who rely on food nutrition programs at school, you know, millions of children nationwide. Um, and certainly thousands here within uh, you know, Central Virginia and the district I represent that depend on school for nutrition assistance, for stability, um, for you know, a, a bit of a reprieve from sometimes what is otherwise a difficult home life. And so you know, they're trapped outside of what is the safety and security of their school. Um, for, for those who you know, can't go to work. I mean, the 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 feeling of being trapped is um, is pretty substantial in in our office. What we're hearing most, what I'm hearing most, are it it has to do with the lack of control. People don't know what to do. People can't do what they normally do, um, and they're they're trying to respond. And for some, it's the frustration of it, and for some, it's far greater than that. It's an actual threat to their economic, personal, and health stability. And then there's on this notion of being trapped, there's something I think even worse than that, which is what we're seeing uh, at our nursing homes and our hospitals, where for the safety and security of patients, particularly in our nursing homes and, and long-term care facilities, uh, nationwide, they shut down visitors um, relatively early on in the crisis when we saw what was happening in Washington state. Um, and, and here we have our neighbors and our elders who are trapped on the inside, family and friends can't get to them. And in some of the most horrific scenarios, there are um, COVID-19 outbreaks in those facilities. But, but even the outbreak aside, um, the, the notion that people um, you know, are, are isolated from families and, and trapped in a place meant to keep them safe, but 
separated from those who might otherwise make them feel the safest. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's so hard. And I, and, and that I think is, is something that, you know, I and, and Kendra Rosenblatt, you know, uh, have uh, seen, you know, uh, very acutely is that, um, you know, especially for, for older folks and, and, and especially for folks who are in uh, facilities like that, you know, the, you know, what's, what's, what's most threatening about this moment, you know, in addition to the, to the, you know, the, the, the physical health, rather, the threat of, uh, of, of infection and, and, and God forbid death, um, but, um, but, but the isolation, you know, the, the, the loneliness and, um, uh, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's uh, particularly challenging. And I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder if we can, uh, uh, if I can ask you about this, you know, so I, now the conversation um, has started shifting to, you know, the, the end game for, um, for, you know, the, the shelter in place orders and social distancing um, with, you know, with, with scenarios being laid out on the, on the West coast and, and then other kind of plans being floated, but it, but it seems like, you know, all of those plans, you know, are, are basically suggest that we're going to be in this state of affairs for, for at least another few weeks, right, and maybe another couple of months, uh, and then and then um, life won't resume to normal, you know, until there is um, a, a, a vaccine or you know a widely available effective therapy for the for the virus. And so I wonder, you know, um, what what um, in, in the kind of framework of the Red Sea, you know, like, you know, there's, there's, there's a, uh, there's a pathway through eventually. Um, yeah. What do you see as the pathway through here? And, um, and, and, and uh, what do you say to people who are, you know, the people who are in nursing homes or, or, you know, living at, living by themselves that, you know, are kind of staring down the barrel of another six, 12 months of isolation? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a there's a couple elements here. We, from a public policy standpoint, there's the issue of how do we resume the kind of normalcy of our community and our economy and protect the public health priorities, um, and and really part of that is having the ability to test widely, um, because there is even though we were looking at when Virginia will hit its apex and and we've done a good job of flattening our curve by all of the models and pulling our kind of peak date forward, um, which will help mitigate the challenges that we would otherwise witness in our hospitals, the kind of crushing overload and the um, run on ventilators and, and all of these kind of extreme problems that we've seen in other places like New York and New Jersey uh, and Michigan. But we are living by, and in Virginia, June 10th is our date, right? We're living by this notion of June 10th, but we're not going to flip a switch then. That is the estimate for when we might be able to begin uh, a return to something that is something more akin to what we had before the COVID-19 outbreak. And so, you know, when we're looking for that path, I think it's, in this case, it, it isn't a clear one. There isn't one, you know, June 19th, we open up and we're back to normal it will be a really difficult path to determine what's the right pace at, at which we open up. Is it schools, uh, you know, businesses, restaurants? Even once we start opening up, what's the psychology that exists within all of us where we've now spent the past couple months covering our faces, not shaking hands, 
when we're ready to return to some sort of normal community, how do we do that? You know, how do we attend uh, services where we're sitting close to people where we otherwise might hug and greet friends and shake hands? Um, and so those are the sort of cultural questions that I have been exposed to people kind of trying to wade through. But in, a, in addition to that, there's the public policy standpoint of how do you balance all of the needs? We need people to be able to put a roof over their heads and food on the table. And so, you know, the, from the federal government perspective, we've taken steps with, uh, you know, payments to Americans and unemployment insurance, expansive uh, unemployment benefits, uh, forgivable loans to businesses, um, and, and these sorts of things. But um, we we have to make sure that we're ready to hit a balance. And part of that is for us into the long term, you mentioned until there's a vaccine or therapies, is being able to un determine where there might be potential hotspots. Um, and we're frankly, from not on pace to have testing as broadly uh, and as, you know, as widely available as we need it to be in order for us to have um, you know, a, a total kind of glide path towards resuming our normal activities because we won't, we will just rebound if we don't have those things in, in place. Um, and, you know, from a, from a federal perspective, I've been advocating significantly for this, but this is where we need a coordinated national response driving this effort. Um, all in there. <laughs> well, I, I think that you actually uh, um, raise a really uh, important point, and I'd, I'd love to ask you about that, about the role of, of leadership during this, this moment, right? And, um, and I think that leadership is, uh, you know, is is uh, takes different forms and, and works at different levels. Uh, and you know, leadership is not always um, uh, directly related to you know position or authority. But uh, but you know, leadership is a is a central theme of the narrative in, in in Exodus that that we just read, right? That you know, the people complain to Moses, we're we're, you know, we're going to die here, um, and you led us to our death. And, and Moses says, "Chill out." everything will be fine, right? And, uh, and then Moses turns to God and God says, why are you crying out to me? Like, go ahead and, and you know, tell them to move forward. So the role of leadership is very much at play in this, in this narrative. And I wonder um, if you could reflect for us for a moment about um, uh, what you see in, in who, what or who you see in this moment um, uh, is, uh, is, is doing an effective job in, in kind of leading us through. Um, and what are the qualities or the characteristics that we should look for in leadership in this moment? And 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 if you want, you could look at the opposite of that too. Like, uh, uh, what do you think needs to be fixed uh, in in how we're being led through this moment? Um, I'm I'm smiling because I've been trying to make the metaphor with Exodus, but this one's a little bit easier for me. So I feel like I'm going to get my biblical metaphor much much stronger this time. Okay. Um, so you know I. I in, in this crisis, I think we have the opportunity to witness sort of beauty and leadership all around us. And it's you know, the, the folks at home who are sewing masks and delivering it, uh, delivering them to their neighbors so that they can go to the grocery store with their face covered. It's uh, Girl Scout troops and Boy Scout troops who are um, delivering food to healthcare frontline workers. It's uh, community, be, be they cultural or religious or social organizations that are, that are volunteering. Um, we're, we're seeing a tremendous um, 
the beauty of the human spirit within our communities that is leadership driven within you know a desire to help and then more broadly leadership more in the kind of traditional sense where people have a voice by virtue of what their job is or by virtue of the role that they play and they're using it in a way that um, is is helping um, and and there's a couple I think standout um, notable people who have really risen to the top in this nationwide conversation and and their governors um, and and somewhat not surprisingly because by virtue of their position of leadership and I'll speak specifically of Governor Whitmer um, of uh, Michigan and then Cuomo of New York um, because of the horror they're witnessing in their states, there has been a lot of national attention in what their response has been. Um, and I think that they have risen to the occasion um, in the way that they communicate with their constituents, in the way that they are communicating with the country, in the way that they are defining a problem. Um, and I, I think that there's elements of sort of understanding what leadership in time of crisis is, could, and should be um, in what it is that they're doing. Um, and Governor Newsom out in California, I think, is a, another example where they are very honestly and earnestly defining the problem that they are facing, right? And I think in times of crisis, people want to be able to trust their leadership, uh, you know, be they in that position because of job or because of other reasons. They want to trust people who are directing them, who are giving them information. And people want some amount of control and knowledge about a particular circumstance. And so I think the fact that they have been honest about the challenges that their states face, the, their healthcare system, the deaths in their states, um, have, have demonstrated that honesty. Um, and, and frankly, when you are honest about issues that are difficult like that, you are, in my opinion, demonstrating a certain level of respect for the people who are on the receiving end of that information, um, respect that they need that information, that it's valuable to them, that they deserve to have it. Um, and then they've also endeavored to fix problems. And you know, certainly some of the challenges that they're facing are outside of the realm of their um, you know, singular ability to address, but they are calling out for help. Uh, and when that help doesn't arrive, uh, they are finding ways to create pathways, um, you know, finding vendors for personal protective equipment, uh, working within the state to create, uh, you know, manufacturing production lines to actually create what it is that they need, um, and doing the advocacy for what it is that's necessary within their, their own states. Um, and then I think ultimately they're not, they're not seeking to blame, they're not seeking to distract, they're seeking to move forward. and and. For me, you know, within our district, within the realm of, of uh, you know, engagement that I have, um, you know, what I can respond to is the need for information. What I can respond to is an explanation of how it is that I'm trying to help people. And part of that is delivering truth about, um, you know, the programs that Congress has enacted, how those programs can be helpful to the people I represent, what some of the shortcomings of those programs are and a small business loan program, the rules put in place by SBA are problematic. And I could, you know, complain all day about how SBA made it really restrictive on small business owners, but instead I'm saying, you know, I'm going back to SBA pretty much every day and saying, you all need to change this. You all need to change this. Um, and this is why. Let me give you another example. Let me knock on your door another time. 
Um, and so, you know, and I, I, I think then there's a larger element of leadership, which is being able to say, you know, I, I know I'm not doing everything right, but I will go back and look when we are through the immediacy of this crisis and be able to reflect on what we could have done better. Um, and, and I think where we're lacking, um, and, and this is something I've been very vocal on, um, is personal protective equipment is, uh, and so that's masks, that's uh, surgical masks, that's N95, respirators, ventilators, gowns, gloves, the testing equipment, so reagents and the nasal pharyngeal swab, swabs to administer tests for this virus. Um, we do not have a coordinated national strategy for um, obtaining those items. Now, within U.S. law, we have what's called the Defense Production Act, allowing for uh, the executive branch to, in exigent circumstances, when authorized by law, which currently the DPA is, is activated, um, uh, or available for use, uh, the administration, the executive branch, can go out and direct actions of manufacturers, can coordinate, can allow for companies that otherwise might be considered competitors and not allowed, uh, competitors and not allowed to coordinate because it might bump up against antitrust legislation and, and laws, uh, allow them to coordinate in this we're all in it together kind of mentality. Um, and for whatever reason, the current uh, executive uh, administration um, will not use that to the full extent that it is available to us. Uh, we've tiptoed into it and, you know, for reference, there's been times when the current administration has used the DPA thousands of times in one week uh, when it comes to uh, the production of military equipment, the uh, purchase of uh, rare earth minerals to make lasers and other military equipment. There, they're perfectly comfortable utilizing it. Uh, but when it comes to saving lives, there's been a, a significant reticence. Um, and it's it's not, to me, the most egregious thing isn't that they didn't jump right ahead and use it, but when there are people around the country, be they federal legislators, be they governors, who are saying this is the coordinated effort, the unity um, of voice that we need to save lives in our country, we need this action, um, the refusal to do so, I think, um, in the face of being told what is a good path forward, the refusal to take that path, I think, is, is problematic. Um, and I will just one more point, um, give a, a, a voice, a, a, a express some appreciation for Governor Northam. As we've seen, uh, Virginia now has the most deaths in nursing home facilities. Uh, the current death toll at uh, Canterbury is 45. Beth Shalom is now seeing um, increasing numbers of fatalities. And uh, last week, uh, the governor announced a unified task force recognizing that this problem is specific, how you deal with the issue of congregant living. Uh, so it's nursing homes, it's prisons, it's jails, how you deal with congregant living when a virus uh, is introduced, how do you deal with that? How do you fight it? How do you isolate? How do you uh, test patients? Um, and he has taken uh, the step of creating this task force that will focus on this problem. Um, and I'm really so deeply appreciative that he's taken that step because I don't want any other community to face what we faced here in Henrico County uh, with the number of deaths that, that we have seen. Um, that with a strong coordinated effort where we're constantly learning 
and constantly improving upon process, we can get through this without seeing um, the sort of tragedies like we've witnessed at Canterbury. Yeah, um, and you, ra you raise a couple of issues there that I want to um, uh, drill down on for a moment. Uh, so you talked about the role of, um, of honesty in, in effective leadership, especially during a, a crisis. And, and I think that, um, you know, uh, it's probably uh, uh, not an exaggeration to say that, uh, that, that in general, people's trust in, um, in the efficacy of government in, in the U.S. Yeah. probably at a uh, at an all-time low on on both, you know, uh, people of, of all political persuasions, um, uh, you know, are, tend to be um, uh, distrustful of the efficacy of of, uh, of of government, and so and 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 um, I've seen that you know really play out in you know like if you already have that sort of a kindling of uh, of, of a lack of trust, uh, uh, you know, and, and then a and then a crisis hits, um, it becomes even more. It's you know it's it's the boy who cried wolf you know syndrome like if you you know yeah. if you if you already are are inclined to think that the things that are coming out of your leader's mouths are are are, are not true um, then uh, you know when when there's a real emergency um, it, it becomes really difficult that's present in the Exodus story you know um, uh, that the uh, the the whole narrative in a sense begins with a uh, with with an act of gaslighting uh, by Pharaoh you know he said uh, he doesn't remember Joseph the person who you know, it was sort of single-handedly responsible for saving Egypt a generation before. A lot of the commentators say that he he deliberately forgets Joseph, right? He, in other words, like pretends that Joseph never existed in order to tell the tell his people, you know, that the that the children of Israel are much too big for us. We have to control them. Then ultimately, we have to kill their their babies. And he's um, uh, he's using you know deliberate untruths um, uh, in order to perpetrate uh, this uh, um, injustice and um, uh, and uh, calamity, um, but you also have that of Moses, even in this, uh, um, even in this uh, story of the splitting of the sea. Right, Moses says to them, "Don't worry, everything will be fine." Uh, and God says to him, "Why are you telling them that? You know, like I didn't tell you everything was going to be fine. You got to do something about this, right?" Yeah. So the so the, the 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 place of honesty and leadership, I think, really comes to the fore in in the Exodus story. But you raised a couple of other points that I want to. Uh, uh, see if you can reflect on for a minute one of which is is humility right the recognition of what you don't know uh and uh and and ability to uh, uh acknowledge when you've made mistakes um and uh and empathy uh which um uh which which is is very much a uh, a recurring theme in the exodus story right even in in the end of the story uh of the of the splitting of the sea, we hear, you know, uh, Pharaoh's heart hardened again, and he chased the children of Israel. Uh, uh, had his whole army didn't care about the well-being of his army. Go into the sea; it doesn't matter. Um, that is recurring through the story, right? The uh, the people of Israel cry out for their bondage. Pharaoh has a hard heart. Uh, Moses says, "Let my people go." They're crying out for their bondage. Pharaoh has a hard heart. Says no. Uh, the plagues start coming. His people are suffering too. He continues to have a hard heart and 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 says no. So the role of hard-heartedness here, which I think has two dimensions: one of not being particularly moved by the suffering of people, you know, a lack of empathy, and the other is um, uh, being too convinced of your own correctness, right? Despite the evidence to the contrary, um, is you know are, are sort of emblematic of 
of history's most iconic tyrant. Um, and and yeah. therefore, what we're, um, I think, meant to learn from it is, uh, is, is uh, to look for empathy and for humility in, in our leaders. Well, one of the things when you were talking at the end about the notion of a hardened heart and um, a lack of, kind of awareness of people suffering, instantly what I thought about is the, the comments from some of my colleagues and, and a, another House member just uh, spoke to the press about this, the notion that, well, we should accept, you know, a, a certain number of deaths to save our economy. Right. Here is, um, there is an astounding, in, from my perspective, an astounding lack of kind of awareness in a comment like that. Because inherent in that comment, he's not volunteering to die to save the economy. And the others who have said things like, oh, you know, any grandparent would die to save the economy for their grandchildren. Um, that is... That is a statement that makes people kind of spin in its simplicity because you think it's this idea, it's saving the economy, you know, some level of self-sacrifice. There's this mush of kind of bringing about what seems almost noble, but in, in the fact, it, it represents a complete um, abandonment of the idea that we should be fighting this virus. We should be putting all of our energy towards um, stopping it towards a vaccine, towards testing, being able to pe keep people safe. And this decision that someone in elected, in, in this case, in, in an elected uh, office would just say, well, no, some people are going to die and it's what's kind of necessary or it's the trade-off, to me is an astounding lack of leadership because there's one thing to say, the reality is our community will face a hard time. The reality is we we will see deaths in our community. The reality is you know, we can't beat this virus fast enough to save everyone. But the idea that we would give up because something else is more important than human life um, or someone's grandparent or loved one is, is for me, kind of this, this notion of a, a hardened heart leadership where you're just not even seeing, you know, in the case of my colleague, you're not even seeing the people you represent as, as individuals who have lives worth continuing. Um, I think the focus on acknowledging mistakes you can only improve upon things and this is in time of crisis this is you know in in the most simplistic things from you know becoming better at any activity if you play the piano and you want to get better you have to acknowledge what you're doing wrong right and and when we go to music lessons or when we're little kids and you're practicing penmanship you say oh you know this is what you're doing wrong this is how to get better um but somehow with adults, we've reached this point where a level of when people tell us what our faults are, some people close down and think that that is somehow an attack on, on their ability. When in fact, I think the strength comes in recognizing what you could have done better. Um, and like walking away from history, you talked about how they, how the Pharaoh didn't even acknowledge Joseph you know, we're, we're walking away from our own history as it relates to pandemics on a couple different fronts. Um, part of it is even just in recent history between uh, H1N1 and SARS and Ebola, we've had the experience of being successful, um, you know, notwithstanding tragedy in, in both at home and abroad, in being successful in getting these, um, these outbreaks what otherwise could be horrific global pandemics under control. We have led 
And when I say we, I mean the United States. The United States has led. The Ebola response was led by the United States government. And we went overseas to help others because it was the right thing to do and because it helped us. Um, and when I've heard people say, well, you know, they said that swine flu would be bad. They said that bird flu would get bad. And they said Ebola and that never happened. Well, that actually never, it, it never got as bad as it could have been because of U.S. leadership, because we took it seriously, because we raised, uh, rose to the occasion each time. And so I think walking away from history and not being truthful about not just the failures of the past, but the successes of the past, um, preclude us from learning from them and recognizing that had we been doing the same sorts of things with uh, coronavirus that we did most recently with Ebola, um, we would perhaps be in a different place. Um, and this whole notion of people not trusting government, well, one of the things I find most egregious is a lot of reasons that people don't trust government is because sometimes uh, those in government find it to their personal benefit to sort of rage against the machine, but not in a productive way. Congress is a, as a member of Congress, Congress is a crazy institution. Meetings never start on time. People always talk over each other where it can be very, very slow. Like there are a lot of things that I would improve about Congress. But I think if I were to walk around nonstop saying, oh, it's corrupt and oh, it's this and oh, it's that, which there are always things that are improvement. There are a few members that I might think shouldn't be reelected by those who rep who elected them, um, but the heart of the institution was founded uh, on this notion that we represent the people back home in our districts. We come to Washington. We come together. We fight. We argue. We debate, and we do good things for people. Um, and what you want to see uh, is a uh, what I want to see is a majority of people who are focused on doing good things for the people that they represent. And when you break down that institution and call it a swamp and you, you know, always are um, impugning the people who are there, you know, the people who shouldn't be there, vote them out, <laughs> take ethics charges against them. I mean, there's, there is a need for, you know, some of these remedies. Um, but for those who seek to always rage against the machine and then they're surprised when the machine doesn't work or when people don't trust the machine, you know, that's, that is in and of itself a problem that uh, is of our, our own creation. Um, and, and even within sort of political circles, um, you know, the whole notion of like Washington's broken. I don't, I don't personally think Washington's broken. I think that any form of government, be it at the state level, the local level, or the federal level, um, needs continual improvement. And this gets back to that ability to recognize what the faults are, call out things that are wrong, and endeavor to actually improve it. Because leadership isn't saying, oh, you know, this, this is broken. It's this is broken. And this is how we fix it. Um, and wanting to do that with a level of you know, humility and empathy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what, I mean, what you're what you're uh, what you're pointing to, I think, is um, you know some of the some of the underlying conditions that have um, exacerbated and made this pandemic uh, uh, deadlier, uh, more destructive. You know, I, I uh, and I know you're on the uh, 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 congressional committee that deals with with uh, things like forest fires, uh, <laughs> right? So. Um, you know, I think that I've, I've heard this analogy of the pandemic, of a, of a pandemic in general, viral pandemic being kind of like a forest fire in, in the sense that like, you know, it, um, it's, it's relatively unpredictable, um, but it becomes more 
uh, uh, it becomes more difficult to contain and uh, faster to spread um, if there is lots of dry brush and kindling, uh, more fuel for the fire uh, strewn about. And, and I think that some of the, um, you know, broader kind of like cultural conditions and social conditions that you're talking about, um, the prison system, uh, the the elder care system, uh, the um, the the child care uh, system, um, uh, the the healthcare system in in this country, our relationship to government um, are all we're all kind of like perfectly poised kindling to uh, to, to exacerbate the fire. Um, there's a a a, a, a writer of named Chloe, uh, Chloe Cooney who wrote on Medium the other day uh, something that really struck me the article was called parents are not okay um and she wrote uh, viruses or in this case global pandemics expose and exacerbate the existing dynamics of a society good and bad they're like the funhouse mirror grossly reflecting ourselves back to us hmm. does that resonate for you I, it it does and I had seen that headline and I was going to go back and read that at one point and I now you're reminding me that I actually never did. Um, yeah, so I, I am the chair of the Conservation and Forestry Subcommittee, um, which is a, a subcommittee on the Agriculture Committee. And so I have had now a year and a few months of learning, you know, all that all that one would ever want to know about forest fires and forest maintenance. And I think the metaphor is so perfect because even what we're doing at home in the US there are great plans for what we should be doing in terms of uh, forest maintenance. Uh, but we are constantly always pulling money out of forest maintenance to be responsive to other things. And so what you have is you have excess brush. You have even access roads that firefighters would need to actually go fight fires that are uh, not passable. And so we have moved, and, and then there's also the issue of overall uh, global climate change, which is significantly impacting the extreme weather events that do also compound the challenges of uh, forest fires. But we find ourselves, and I, I, I say we, because I, I deal with this, looking no longer at fire season, but now it's fire year. And the Forest Service is looking at how do you deal with fires and the money keeps getting pushed to how do you deal with fires rather than how do you prevent fires? And it becomes this cycle that to get out of is really, really difficult. Um, and it takes some intentionality. It takes a recognition that we are in a whole different place. And you have to have that commitment to an, in, an investment essentially in prevention um, that will in the end save you from all of the reaction. Um, that comes at a time when there's loss of life and there's loss of business and there's loss of uh, all of these other compounding factors with, with forest fires. But the coronavirus has demonstrated real uh, areas of improvement within our communities. When we look at the, the death rates, particularly those with underlying health conditions, um, and the death rates that are also disproportionately um, found with minority commuter communities um, and uh, socioeconomically challenged communities. The, the map of New York City and where there are the most deaths are in the uh, most disadvantaged economically speaking areas and the highest uh, minority populations. And so that isn't the virus striking um, in a disproportionate way. That is the kindling being greater um, in those areas. That is 
people who can't afford their prescription drugs so their underlying condition isn't um, maintained perhaps in the same way that someone who is uh, more economically stable is able to do. Uh, I hear stories all the time about uh, constituents who are rationing their insulin, rationing their other medication that they need for a chronic illness, but they cannot afford to buy their medication um, and, and take it as prescribed. And so those people who have that story live everywhere in this country. Um, and that is a bit of kindling where this, where this uh, disease was able to take hold within our prison system. Uh, you know, the fact that we are now in a time of pandemic evaluating who might be eligible for release? Well, in a time of pandemic, someone is eligible for release into the community. Is there perhaps a time where we should be considering who is eligible to, for release so that they can restart their lives, so they can have a job, and not just in time of a global pandemic, free up space? Uh, I was on the phone with um, some individuals who work for the Bureau of Prisons, um, and they are stressed. And when we talk about how we treat you know, our, our federal workforce, the federal workforce that was denied a paycheck for over a, a month because of a government shutdown last year. And we had prison guards um, working in our penitentiaries for free for a month. Um, and in an, what is not necessarily a, a positive relationship between guards and prisoners in at times, you know, the stories of prisoners who are taunting prison guards, you know, your government won't even pay you. Like the the astounding nature of that and and now we are asking people to go into prisons um they're not necessarily our leave policy if you're sick and you work in a congregant facility like a prison or like a a nursing home um what are what are the leave policies that are in place in our country that allows someone to actually step away when they're sick well so we in congress passed a bill that if you have coronavirus you get two weeks and there's certain provisions on it but you get two weeks of sick leave so that we can protect our community. Here's the problem. Employers, in some cases, federal government employers, but also private employers are requiring COVID-19 positive test results. Well, we don't have enough tests. So you have people getting sent home from the hospital with a, this is a presumptive positive. We can't give you a test. You have all of the uh, symptoms. You should go home. Presumptive, it's COVID. If you have something, if you have significant trouble breathing, come back to the hospital but you don't have that positive test, which means you can't get your 14 days leave. And you know, some employers have been very good about this from a public health standpoint, but we wrote a law to fix this problem, to address this challenge um, that, you know, again, we're being reactive to a reality on the ground. But if you don't have those who work, for example, in the prison system or those who work at Walmart are being told to use their own leave if they don't actually have that positive test. And if you don't have the leave to use, what's your choice? Now, as an individual, you're choosing to potentially put your job in jeopardy by not showing up if you don't have available leave. Uh, or even if they'll protect your job, you're going without pay. Can you afford to do that for two weeks for this notion of, I think I might be sick, I don't want to infect others? Um, and then the impact on our kids. You know, we're asking our kids to forego school to keep the public safe. And yet we've got kids across our communities that don't have access to internet at home. Um, and and the investment that we're making um, in all of these other places, but we're not necessarily making it in the most basic, which like element of our society, which is the, the future of everything, our future firefighters, our future prison guards, our future doctors, our future nurses, our future rabbis. Um, and this 
division between the experience, you know, frankly, of, of kids who have multiple, you know, my daughter's downstairs on a Skype call with her third grade class because we have multiple devices in our home and we have internet. Um, and how many classmates, either from her class or across the country, are unable to join into that experience, are unable to get their homework? And, and what does that mean generationally speaking? And so to bring it all back to the forest fire metaphor, you know, these are all the elements of kindling that have created um, the ability for this virus to spread, the real hardship when we're taking the public health steps to try and address it, um, and we are being responsive with our efforts to respond to the crisis. But in so many places where I hope that our takeaway from this is that there are so many places where we could be more proactive, where we could, you know, clear some of that debris, clear some of that kindling, and that the next time we see a, a, a potential crisis of this magnitude, we're able to stop it. And it, you know, burns a couple hundred acres, but not thousands. Yeah. So I want to I want to see if, uh, um, for just a minute um, if we can uh, uh, mix metaphors here, um, and because um, I, I know you know that there's a, a, a Jewish tradition that um, the Exodus wasn't at least only uh, if some people think it wasn't even a, a historical event, or at least wasn't only a historical event, that it is a perpetual spiritual event. And so the uh, the Haggadah, the liturgical script for the Seder says that in every generation a person is obligated to see him or herself as if they personally left Egypt. Um, and so that means that we're supposed to look at um, ourselves, our lives, our world, um, as if we are perpetually in some Egypt, um, that there is a, a, a better place, a promised land that we can get to, um, that, you know, a, a, a new world. Um, uh, that uh, and a new society or a new self that we can build that is um, in opposition to has has uh, has the opposing values uh, to the Egypt that we're leaving, uh, and that um, and that we have the capacity to uh, be liberated to uh, to uh, to move forward uh, into you know from Egypt to that promised land. So I'm wondering if you can think about that um, just for a moment, whether in this Current crisis, or or in general, what would you say is the is the Egypt of right now? Um, what is the promised land that you see? Um, how do we get from one place to the other? You can, you know, who's Pharaoh? Who are the Israelites? You can take it wherever you want. Okay, uh, well, you know, I, I think in there's a there's a couple pieces to this. If I'm if I'm trying to play with this this metaphor, I think there's a variety of. of across our country, there's different Egypts, right? So we're seeing a different, a, a different state of being if you're in Michigan versus if you're in California versus Virginia versus New York. Um, and some of that is on the ground, how bad the virus got. Some of that is on the ground, the preparation or the reaction of governors um, and, and kind of localities. But I, I think if we're thinking that our current state of being has some of these shortcomings, has some of these you know, systemic issues that any society has, but we've had a, a moment of clarity to see in a time of crisis, how are our weaknesses, um, how are our weaknesses making things a bit worse, or how are our weaknesses that kindling for a crisis? Um, I, I think that to pay respect to those who have lost their lives to this crisis, I think to 
pay respect to those who are truly suffering during this crisis, we have an obligation to look at what those weaknesses are um, of our of the Egypt, if you will. And if we are going someplace, as we are emerging from this virus, as we are emerging from this pandemic and this shutdown scenario, where do we want to be? You know, I, I think that we want to be in a place where uh, some of those risk factors are mitigated, where there are some of the inequities that have become very, very clear, be it, you know, kids who can't do their schoolwork at home or um, it, it, people who rely on food assistance who aren't getting it right now or you know, people whose job just hangs in the balance and they're suddenly their lives are upside down. Um, those who have health conditions that they are not able to take care of properly because of how expensive their prescription drugs are. You know, these are all things that objectively um, I could have told you were weaknesses or areas of improvement. And kind of my focus has been, okay, how can we make this stronger? How can we address these challenges? But I think the urgency of reimagining what we could be and what we should be is a little bit clearer. At least it is for me. And, you know, there's an element for, in, in my focus of I'm, I'm not going back and forth to Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, typically I'm up there Monday through Thursday, Tuesday through Friday, there's back and forth. And when you're, when I'm up there, it's you know, working with my colleagues and trying to make movement on, you know, on issues, either kind of the immediacy of let's get this bill introduced. I need co-sponsors to, you know, long-term, I want to work on this project. Um, I, I think all of this time where I am focused so fully on a crisis scenario without the balance of, you know, this bill that, you know, is specific to a constituent and would be a really great, uh, uh, you know, thing to focus on without that balance of, uh, of, of the, like the normal side of legislating, you know, I've spent all of my time focusing on what is this showing us? What is this crisis showing us? You know, shame on us if we don't learn from this and make things better. And it isn't just about a response to a pandemic or a, or a health issue. It's a response to everything. Um, and so, um, you know, the new world, the new self that, that I want to see us come out of this with is a realization of what uh, what weaknesses we saw in, in the heat, in the uh, focus of this pandemic, um, pulling upon the some of the beauty of the community that we've seen, you know, the firefighters clapping for the, for the nurses and doctors entering the hospitals in New York, and then the nurses and doctors clapping for the firefighters, this sense of community that's brought us together in many ways. How can we continue that? Um, because we have been, as another weakness, in a place of great division, in a place where it's us versus them and them versus us, and there's blame, blame, blame. Um, and I think this is something we're going to have to be careful with because I think there have been a lot of mistakes that have been made. Um, I serve on the subcommittee on the Foreign Affairs Committee that handles Asia issues. So we were doing congressional hearings on COVID-19 in early February. We were inviting administration officials. They weren't coming. Uh, we expressed grave concern over the lack of engagement on the threat that COVID-19 posed to the U.S., and so, yes, in recognizing what I believe are tremendous shortcomings um, and things that the administration, and I'll say particularly the president, did wrong, it has to be that balance of where's the productive nature in that. If you are only blaming, you're not emerging from this 
from this negative place, you're not moving into the effort of making things better. Um, so for me personally, with this, uh, the, the idea of leaving Egypt, you know, I, I want to maintain the, what feels a little bit more like a clear-eyed vision um, and assessment of the real improvements that we need to make in our nation's infrastructure, be that roads and bridges and internet, or be that the, the baseline healthcare system, or be that our educational system. Um, and I wanna maintain some level of the community that has been present um, in places where perhaps that has been more absent. Um, and I, I wanna have the focus be on productive assessment of what's been wrong and what has, um, what, what's, what has been done wrong, what has been wrong, um, in the goal that we move to a better place. And I, I think one thing that I've also uh, spent time thinking about is, you know, I, I'm very anxious for November. I want to see a change in the presidency. I don't think that surprises anyone. Um, but it isn't about the change. It's about what comes with that change. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how November, a change in the White House, needs to be a, well, more than just a change in the White House. It needs to be about a clear idea of what change I expect and want to see. And frankly, as someone who will also be on the ballot in November, um, the change that I want to be an active part in realizing. And, and change doesn't always have to be a movement from A to B. It can be a strengthening of the path along the way from A to B. It can be um, a, a, a shift in communities, a shift in focus. Um, and so the, those are the things that I'm thinking of, um, kind of defining what should be, you know, what it is that we are, what the, the new self should be as we are leaving the old, what is it we should be trying to achieve in, in entering a new place. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.